Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Professor of Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins. We're so excited. We have a heavyweight among us in bioethics, as well as law and privacy law. We have the great Dr. Anita L. Allen, Henry R. Silverman Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy. Now, just for our audience, we actually also have a history breaker. Dr. Allen was the first African-American woman to head up the American Philosophical Association and the first philosopher to write a book on privacy. She is a graduate of Harvard Law with a PhD from the University of Michigan in philosophy. Dr. Allen is also internationally renowned as an expert on philosophical dimensions of privacy and data protection law, ethics, bioethics, legal philosophy, women's rights, and diversity in higher education. She was Penn's Vice Provost for Faculty from 2013 to 2020 and chaired the Provost Arts Advisory Council. And there's many, many more accolades that we could be here literally the next half an hour to 40 minutes. Such a prolific career. One thing I would highlight is that she was a part of the Presidential Commission of Bioethics, um, appointed under President Barack Obama's administration. And she currently serves on the board of the National Constitution Center, the Future of Privacy Forum, and the Electronic Privacy Information Center, whose Lifetime Achievement Award she has received and whose board she has shared. Give a bioethics in the margins round of applause for Dr. Anita Allen. Thank you uh, so much for that introduction and the round of applause. I'm really happy to have a chance to discuss my career as it relates to bioethics with this group. Um, I am extremely proud of the fact that I was awarded the Hastings Center um, Founders Award in Bioethics um, a couple of years ago, and that I was elected to the National Academy of Medicine by virtue of my work on bioethics and privacy. So. Um, I'm part of the community and proud to be part of the community and happy that you guys have decided to include me in your podcast series. Thank you. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. And again, I said that was just a little appetizer. There's many other amazing accomplishments that uh, Dr. Allen has in her illustrious career, including over 120 published articles and chapters as well, which is no small feat for those of us in academia. But let's uh, dive in. So first, um, we're curious in how did you find your way in the field of bioethics, law, as well as ethics? Thank you very much. So when I was a graduate student uh, in philosophy at the University of Michigan 
in the mid-1970s. It was, as you know, sort of the, the birthing era of bioethics as an academic discipline. It was just getting started, very excited. And um, I was invited by uh, Professor Jack Milan to be a teaching assistant in a um, program in medical humanities that was being offered as part of the uh, Interflex Medical School program at Michigan. Uh, Michigan had a program whereby undergraduates could uh, sign up for a six-year program, which, at the end of which they had not only their bachelor's degree, but also their, their MD. So I was a TA in the medical humanities, and I became interested in, in, uh, in bioethics through that initially. Uh, and a, another um, impetus as a graduate student was that I was a teaching assistant under Professor Holly Goldman um, Smith in a class called Contemporary Moral Problems, in which uh, abortion rights and the right to die were um, main topics. And I think that one version of that course actually used a, a textbook edited by uh, Samuel Gorowitz and, and several other people, including Ruth Macklin, um, that was called Moral Problems in Medicine. And it was a 1976 uh, textbook, of which I still have a copy, um, that shows you what people were thinking about in the field of bioethics and medical humanities back in the 1970s when I got started. And so issues like um, uh, transplants and uh, informed consent, uh, um, um, the right to die, living in, living in with birth defects, the, um, dying with dignity, um, uh, scarce medical resources, and even issues around social justice were being discussed um, as early as the 1970s. So uh, that's how I got started, through my work in graduate school. And you know, some of the things we do in graduate school we put behind us when we leave, but I took with me a strong interest in, uh, in, the, uh, in the interface between ethics, bioethics, and uh, philosophy. Uh, when I went to law school in the 19, uh, 1980s, that's when the legal um, layer got, got put on. I also want to mention, uh, uh, you guys, that um, after I got my PhD and I went to teach at Carnegie Mellon University as a philosophy professor, I was rather quickly invited to go to Washington to be a program officer in a program, and I administered um, summer seminars for nurses, physicians, and other healthcare professionals. And through that work, I got to go around the country and visit, site visit NEH-funded seminars and got to meet many of the leading bioethicists of the time, including um, the young Art Kaplan and the young uh, Cicela Bach. Um, so that, that work, the graduate school work, the work in Washington uh, prior to law school, those were the experiences which got me excited about, about the healthcare field in general and about the ethical dimensions of healthcare. Wow, excellent. Yeah, those are also uh, really foundational colleagues, peers, but also heavyweights as well in this amazing sector called bioethics. Uh, curious, and there's been many different events that has connected law and bioethics within the past couple of, couple of years. And one of them is, of course, Roe Wade, which was heard all around our country. Uh, what are your thoughts on the implications and consequences of Roe v. Wade being overturned? Let me start by saying that, of course, the Roe v. Wade decision was in the early 1970s, and it was at a time when um, I was developing as a young scholar. And so uh, I very, very quickly uh, became aware of the um, ethical debates around abortion uh, because it was a hot topic after the Supreme Court um, used privacy as a rationale for abortion uh, rights. Uh, in any event, the, the recent... Um, 
striking down the Roe versus Wade for me spelled spells disaster, because I believe that the right to um, control your reproductive capacities is a fundamental right, uh, legally and morally speaking. I believe that the Constitution does support the idea of individuals having choices about their bodily autonomy and about their lives and futures. I believe that women's equal citizenship is contingent upon having access to abortion rights. What's so striking about, about the Dobbs decision and its implications is that there is kind of a general liberalization of abortion rights around the world. Most countries around the world do support abortion rights and have what we described as, as rather permissive policies. Um, prior to Dobbs, the United States, Canada, and a couple of other nations would had a model of privacy I would have described as the model of privacy, whereby women could get an abortion without having to give anybody a reason. The European model, where, where women get an abortion quite easily, but have to justify the abortion, give reasons, is also rather liberal. But so, so the liberalizing trend has been going on for decades, and now the United States has taken a backward step. Now we're in the same category as a very, very few countries in South America and Europe that, that, that where abortion can be banned entirely. Entirely, uh, because now it's left to the state. So, uh, from from a, my point of view, the Dobbs decision was a disaster from a health point of view, because now women who need abortions can't get them, women who want abortions can't get them, and from a, um, a, um, a legal point of view, uh, it just it just suggests a, a jurisprudence which is going to be. Um, very difficult to sustain because the right to birth control, the right to interracial marriage, the right to gay marriage, the right to gay sex, all of these rights were built on the same uh, judicial theoretical structure as Roe versus Wade. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, despite what's, what's said by some justices about, oh, this Dobbs decision is just about abortion, we know that some justices, including Clarence Thomas, would like to see the court re-litigate all of the, of the uh, personal um, rights that are based on the idea of a 14th Amendment substantive due process. So I'm worried, I'm disturbed by the legal disarray, I'm disturbed by the public health implications. Yeah, absolutely. And usually, traditionally, the Supreme Court is supposed to be a, a balanced type of entity in the government. But we know with affirmative action and many other different things we thought were really safe, unfortunately, aren't anymore in the political climate that we're in right now. As a follow-up question of Roe v. Wade, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, uh, Dr. Allen, you had something to add? I, I want to insert, because you said something very important, which is that um, you mentioned the word politics. And so I think that many Americans are confused how it is that that um, our rights can change when the Constitution stays the same. How, how is that possible? The answer you just gave it, it's politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and the court is not, mm -hmm. unfortunately, above politics at this time in history. Yeah, yeah. And as a follow-up, I know that Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965 about um, contraception, do you think the overturning of Roe v. Wade can challenge the precedent set of privacy in Griswold versus Connecticut? Well, again, uh, the, the 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 foundation of Griswold versus Connecticut is the same foundation as Roe versus Wade. The idea that the Fourteenth Amendment um, supplies. Uh, a foundation for holding that people have uh, liberty to make important decisions about their lives, about their families, about their bodies, 
about their religion, um, about their uh, politics, and about their their uh, abortions and birth control. Really, so 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 I don't understand how um, we can have a right to birth control and not have a right to abortion. Hmm. Uh, well, some would say, hmm. obviously, there's a difference because abortion involves killing uh, an unborn child and birth control doesn't. But that, that way of framing the, the, the problem, I think, um, uh, is um, uh, itself politically charged. And that we could also frame the question simply as, to what extent should women have have the right to make the important decisions, even if they do involve life and death, right? Because we make life and death decisions all the time regarding our children and our families, and, and the government doesn't stand in the way of those. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting how the um, penumbra of privacy and the understanding of that interpretation has changed in the past uh, about 10 years. Um, my le- the, the Griswold decision does um, have a slightly different um, flavor to it because um, the court talked about the penumbra of the Bill of Rights, right, um, being being key. But that penumbra of the Bill of Rights uh, is uh, the First Amendment, you know, right to free association, which was a you know based on a, a largely based in the in the 1950s on a, a Supreme Court decision called NAACP versus Alabama, where black people got the right to not have their membership in the NAACP exposed to the racist government of Alabama. But, 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 but the penumbra of the Bill of Rights is thought to, um, to, to meaning the shadows, the implications of the Bill of Rights are that people have a right to control the most intimate parts of their own lives. And, and that, that, that penumbra of the Bill of Rights, also the court, um, I think, uh, uh, implied, that would extend also to the penumbra of other aspects of the, of the, um, amendments of the Constitution, including the 14th Amendment. And in Roe, the courts just sort of said more explicitly that that penumbra, in addition to the 14th Amendment, is the um, foundation of, um, of uh, the right to abortion. And if, if the court found, finds the substantive due process argument of Roe versus Wade problematic, think how more problematic they would think about the penumbra of the Bill of Rights vague argument uh, in, in Griswold. They decided to reopen that, that can of worms. You know, absolutely, Dr. Allen. Great evaluation. And um, my last question connected to bioethics law, and obviously we're talking about reproductive rights, reproductive justice, is, of course, the technology that has been advanced in bringing life in many different ways other than the traditional procreation. So what do you think about the um, precedent or what precedent is used for surrogacy and fertility law on the federal or state level? And if you allow me uh, to provide some context to this question, so on Netflix and Netflix, this is a disclaimer, we're not paid by Netflix, so this is not a marketing ploy. It's an interesting documentary called Our Father when this uh, gentleman who works or former doctor who worked in a fertility clinic, I believe it was Indiana, come to find out that he used sperm to impregnate his patients. And um, apparently there was a genetic defect that allowed those individuals adopted or, you know, through IVF and many forms of um, impregnation were allowed to connect their um, disability to that individual doctor. And, of course, it was an outrage over 
because of there was a breach of confidence. It was a breach of the doctor-patient relationship and confidentiality, clear negligence. But unfortunately, this doctor did not um, um, be held accountable in the legal um, aspect because there was no law dictating how utility clinics should act and what particular rules should be in place between the doctor and the patient. So that was my context. So when I know that you had um, expertise in this area, uh, that's why I asked this particular question. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Um, are there any updated laws about that or still really archaic in this particular area within bioethics, um, reproductive justice and law? Yeah, um, you know, I, I taught a class um, once or twice called um, Bioethics and the Law, and we looked at some of these these questions. Um, so there's a lot of different issues. So uh, unfortunately, many women, uh, and, and many women of color, I, I might add, uh, do struggle with fertility. Mm -hmm. um, women of color have uh, higher rates of infertility and difficulties becoming pregnant than do white women. Um, and uh, although we're often seen as um, overly hypersexual and somehow overly fertile, the opposite is true in terms of our fertility. So we struggle. So I think that, that, that how we handle uh, and address questions of infertility do have great implications, great social justice implications uh, for, for people of color, women of color, and men of color. Um, so, but I must tell you, my initial, my initial reaction when I first heard about, for example, surrogate parenting was very negative. I was very worried that if we started to allow people to hire women to have babies for them, that it would lead to an underclass of women who were being used sort of a hand, handmaiden's tale style as, as uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, reproductive slaves, almost low paid uh, exploited women. Of, so I was concerned about, about that. that. Um, and wrote, even wrote a paper about surrogacy and slavery and, and compared uh, uh, surrogate uh, mothers to uh, enslaved women who you know were, were turned into commodities and their bodies turned into commodities. But over the years, I've, I've changed my mind. I've softened up because I've seen surrogacy work um, well. I've seen that there hasn't result, there been a result in the United States, maybe elsewhere, but in the United States, I've not seen the development of a class of women who are being uh, used repetitively and exploitatively um, as surrogates. I do think surrogates should be paid more than they're paid, but, um, but there's, there's, there are many examples of fair payment, many examples of complete informed consent, many examples where uh, I, have a, I have, for example, a, a set of um, gay, gay um, men who are married, uh, and they have uh, two children by a surrogate, the same surrogate, and the surrogate is part of the family. So it's not like, you know, there's some poor person being out there who's delivering the baby and then, you know, they're pushing her away, but rather this surrogate is going to be a part of it. So there's different ways to handle this, and not all should, would be handled the way I just described, but, but I don't think anymore that surrogacy is inherently... Um, morally wrong from a social justice point of view. Um, as for other other forms of um, addressing fertility issues, I mean, we we do have a problem that that there 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 wasn't always good regulation. So you have lots of documentaries now, like the one you described, where uh, it, it turns out that some doctor has used his own sperm to inseminate uh, women and they didn't know it. And uh, sometimes the story has, it's like, as you, where there's a genetic defect, sometimes there's no genetic defect, just the secrecy. That's the problem. Um, so, so these are, these are issues. And I think that, that there should be some kind of, um, 
uh, laws that do require complete disclosure as to the source of um, sperm and ova that are used in the context of reproductive technology. I think that if that if that disclosure is made honestly, that um, it's it's not to my mind uh, something which we shouldn't pursue. But again, I think that the um, methods of payment, the amount of payment. Uh, the way people are treated, the informed consent, the privacy and confidentiality, the safety and efficacy of, of the materials used and the techniques and technologies used is, are very, all very, very important. So um, we're in a new age. It's, it's great that so many women who couldn't, women and men who couldn't have families before now can have families. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that technology makes this more and more possible. The freezing of ova, the, um, the um, uh, artificial insemination techniques uh, in vitro and so forth. I mean, that's all a good thing, but it needs to be managed uh, uh, in ways that are, that are um, safe and, and just and ethical and uh, where law can help, law should help. Yeah, absolutely. It looks it looks like the technology is moving so fast and the regulation and legislation is like a snail running extremely slow. So it's not, not keeping up with the technological advances that we see year in and year out. Yeah, I had the pleasure and, uh, um, uh, just a few months ago of going to New Orleans as the key, one of the keynote speakers, plenary speakers, at, for the American Society of Reproductive Medicine's annual meeting. And I got a chance not only to give my lecture, which I talked, which I talked about the Roe decision and the Dobbs decision, but also I got a chance to to see the vendors and see the different technologies and instruments and being used uh, in the context of fertility medicine, and to meet uh, uh, dozens of reproductive uh, uh, specialists and talk to them about what they're experiencing, and they're experiencing some pretty tough questions, um, uh, uh, clinical questions, uh, some tied to the abortion issue. They're now concerned that, that about whether um, the um, loss or destruction of a, of a fertilized um, egg could be seen as an abortion. You know, to what extent does, do, does the abortion prohibition also mean that you can't uh, uh, treat uh, fertilized um, um, embryos, sorry, embryos are fertilized ova in particular ways, and they're concerned that they might be seen as doing something that, that, that crosses a line, and they're protecting themselves by um, not performing certain kinds of, of procedures in states where there are abortion laws that are overly restrictive. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, also, just a, a couple of recent books that Dr. Allen has published. The first was Unpopular Privacy, What Must We Hide by Oxford, and also Privacy Law and Society by Thomas West um, in 2017, just for our viewers. So if you want to um, get two out of the many publications Dr. Allen has, and these are two good ones as well. Uh, so I know... No, go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Allen. Thank you. Um, the book you mentioned, Unpopular Privacy, does have a chapter on confidentiality that I think people interested in bioethics might be interested in. The overall thrust of the book is that um, we need privacy laws that may be um, more aggressive than people on the ground necessarily uh, would choose because of the um, of the uh, great um, power 
of uh, companies in, in the high-tech world uh, over us that make it hard for us to protect ourselves from the uh, from advancing uh, technological um, 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 uh, uh, tools and and, uh, and everyday implements like telephones, for example. So the I'm, I'm a kind of a pro-paternalist in that in that piece, but I have a piece on a chapter on confidentiality that people might find interesting. The other book is a is a textbook, a very massive uh, thousand-plus page textbook, and it does contain. Um, Materials about HIPAA, for example, uh, about um, GINA, the Genetic uh, Non-Discrimination Act, as well as issues around tort law having to do with confidentiality and privacy. So, um, you know, the, the people who are interested in, in law and, and privacy might find the textbook helpful. People interested in paternalism or in confidentiality might find the other book um, uh, helpful. So I thank you for mentioning them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Amelia? Thank you so much, Dr. Allen, for being here with us on Bioethics in the Margins. It really is an honor to speak with you. You've described privacy um, in quite a lot of detail before, I think mainly with three broad categories. So can you explain for our listeners um, a little bit more about how you use those in context? Uh, thank you. Actually, um over the course of my career, which has been now quite long, I think we're approaching 40 years uh, as an academic, um, I have come identify not three, but actually six different forms of privacy that are at play in the law. Uh, you mentioned a couple. So I would say that there's physical privacy, the privacy of one's home, for example, would fit into that box. Informational privacy, with uh, data protection, or a second type of privacy that we're all so excited about today and worried about today. Decisional privacy, which is the privacy of Roe versus Wade and the Dobbs, you know, making decisions about important parts of your life. Associational privacy, though, is another form. This is the form that is protected by the First Amendment, where we have a right to uh, the privacy of our of whom we associate with for political or other purposes, whether it's religious or or um, or, or politics. Um, and then there's what I call intellectual privacy, a term I borrowed from another scholar. But intellectual privacy is the privacy of the mind, and uh, Supreme Court Justice. Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black Supreme Court justice, is one of those who helped to, to create a, the jurisprudence of intellectual privacy in a case uh, involving a man who had been criminally prosecuted for having some um, pornography in his um, home. And then finally, there's uh, the form of privacy that I call proprietary privacy, which is the privacy that relates to um, the attributes of personal identity, our names, our likeness, our identities. And the, and the law does, the common law does protect uh, our interest in people using our, our names and our likenesses without our permission. So, for example, Martin Luther King's family sued a man who had uh, produced some little statuettes of Martin Luther King, sort of bust of Martin Luther King, and was selling them and wanted to, uh, to, to, to um, give some of the money, the proceeds of the sales to the Martin Luther King Center. But when the King family found out about his making these likenesses of King, they actually sued and they used the right to privacy theory that I'm describing, this proprietary privacy idea, to say that, um, that this man, the stranger to the King family, didn't have the right 
to produce likenesses of Dr. King without their consent and to sell them in the marketplace. So those are the six forms of privacy, all of which have a life in the law. And I think one of the reasons why people often say, oh, privacy is so confusing, it's so vague, is because it is a concept that has a marvelously broad reach across our, our language, across our culture, and across our laws. And that's not, to me, a bad thing. It's just a fact. And if we want to talk about privacy, we probably need to clarify in each, each instance which of these forms of privacy are at issue uh, in the uh, topic at hand. From 2010 to 2017, I believe you served on President Obama's Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. Can you tell us more about that? So this was one of the highlights of my life, really. I was so delighted that President Obama, whom I had met when he was a law student at Harvard in the early 1990s, uh, invited me to be a member of the commission. The vetting process was extremely lengthy. Um, I was so glad that I passed muster. But this commission was just an amazing opportunity. It was probably the most um, diverse of the bioethics commissions that we've had. We had uh, people of different races, um, different nationalities, back, national backgrounds. We had, we had people from medicine, people from, from, from the military, people from religion. We had a priest uh, on, on board. Uh, so we had people from diff very different backgrounds. Um, and it, was, uh, it meant the conversations were very um, lively and diverse, and we didn't always agree, but trying to reach agreement was very important. The commission was chaired by uh, Dr. Amy Gutman, who happened to be also the president of Penn, which is the university at which I, I teach. So we had two, two Penn reps on the commission. And in fact, when I found out that Dr. Gutman was going to be the chair, I thought, oh no, Obama can't appoint me because he can't possibly appoint two people from the University of Pennsylvania. But I was wrong about that, and I'm very glad that I was wrong. But in any event, um, so the commission, we operated for about seven years. I was on the commission the entire time that it was in, in existing. I must say that all of us who were on the commission uh, resigned uh, the day before, or the week before President Trump was inaugurated because none of us wanted to be associated um, with the Trump administration. I think, I hope I'm not speaking falsely about anybody, but I believe that we all resigned um, um, before Trump took office. And Trump did not appoint a commission, neither has um, uh, uh, Biden. I think that the pandemic can explain uh, why uh, the, the idea of appointing a commission would have been problematic in the second half of Trump's term and in the beginning of uh, and, and in Biden's term, because as you know, respect for science and technology has been uh, deeply assaulted uh, in the last few years, starting with the Trump administration. People are not believing in expert, the expertise of, of people in medical and medicine and science, which would make it very difficult, I think, to set up a commission in the current environment. But in any event, we had a wonderful time, a wonderful experience. We, uh, we began our, our seven years with a request from the president to... Um, to look at the issue of synthetic biology because uh, about the same time the commission was formed, I think it was actually the same month the commission was formed, uh, the uh, Craig Bentner Institute it, um, announced that it had created um, a, a life uh, in, in, uh, in a laboratory. And this, uh, this announcement was uh, quite uh, stirring and raised the question of whether or not it was ethical to uh, use synthetic biology techniques to um, create new new life forms. And also, the, it was a question about how do we understand what uh, the Craig Venter uh, Institute actually had done? Did it involve creating a new life form, or was it something much less um, 
um, um, novel and uh, and potentially threatening. So we began there, uh, and we had many many reports. We talked about neuroscience, about children, and and uh, and, and vaccines, and uh, we talked about um, um, uh, um, Ebola, public health planning, and so forth. But I think for all of us on the commission, probably the highlight in terms of issues we we discussed and debated and reported on was the uh, Guatemala um, um, sex. The Guatemala uh, uh, infectious disease uh, and sexuality um, experimentations that went on uh, in the um, in the period before the Tuskegee experiment happened. So uh, we learned during the course of our work that a um, researcher from Wellesley College had discovered some papers in an archive at the University of Pittsburgh that um, revealed there had been a, uh, a, a U.S. Public Health Service project in Guatemala in conjunction with the Guatemalan government in which uh, um, Guatemalan um, prisoners, soldiers, sex workers, and even children had been involved in efforts to establish the um, efficacy of penicillin as a um, prophylaxis and treatment for, uh, for sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, disorders, conditions like syphilis and gonorrhea. And so part of the experiments involved deliberately attempting to infect um, uh, men with, uh, with sexually transmitted infections. And uh, the techniques that were used were horrific, including in some instances taking emulsions of, um, of uh, that had been made from from gonorrhea-infected tissues and deliberately applying them to the penises of men or into people's eyes and noses and mouths. Uh, terrible experiments on children because it was believed that um, Guatemala was a quote-unquote syphilis-soaked society and that they could show this by taking spinal taps from children to reveal that the children had been uh, affected by sexually transmitted infections as well people in mental hospitals. And the whole thing was, um, it was racist, it was cruel, it was violent. We wrote a report called Ethically Impossible, and we chose that title because there had been a discussion about whether this research could have been done in the United States, and the opinion was that it was ethically impossible to do it in the United States, but it was not ethically impossible to offshore it into a um, so-called banana republic. So, uh, so and, and some of the same public health doctors who were involved in Guatemala went on to work in, in the Tuskegee experiment, too, where, as you know, everyone knows, um, a, a group of African-American men who were affected by syphilis went untreated for, for decades because the, uh, uh, the experimenters wanted to see what was the natural course of uh, untreated syphilis. So that was powerful. We had powerful testimony. We sent people to Guatemala to do research there. We produced an amazing report that I think is should be must reading, must do reading for anybody in the bioethics field. I think it was probably our most important contribution. Another one of our contributions, if I might just make one more point, I know I'm going on a bit long here, but my answers I hope are helpful, um, is that we, um, we adopted deliberative democracy as a bioethical principle. We uh, didn't stray far otherwise from the traditional uh, Beecham and Childress analysis of the principles of bioethics, you know, beneficence and non-maleficence and so forth. But we thought that it was important to include deliberative democracy, obviously affected by the research of Dr. Amy Gutman, but, but the idea that somehow um, 
important to, to bioethics is whether or not there have been opportunities for the public to consider uh, and debate important issues being itself an ethical requirement of uh, medical and research practices. Since that got dismantled um, and has not been reenacted, has that left Congress grappling with issues without the appropriate advice from a commission like this? Um, you know, I, I used to aggressively hope that it would be reinstated because I thought we were such a valuable um, resource. Now, what the commission does can vary from president to president. I believe some of the early commissions reported to Congress. We reported to the president, and, and the president had a particular vision of what he wanted the commission to do, which was to, to examine important issues of emerging uh, medicine, research, and technology. So, so I, I, I think that there are many different roles a commission could have in terms of advising the government. What saddens me, though, is that there is an international network of bioethics commissions, and many countries have standing commissions or have regularly appointed and reappointed commissions. And the United States is not part of that because we don't have um, uh, a standing commission or a set of regularly appointed commissions. We're left out of a global conversation that happens around bioethics because we don't have any official representation in that uh, international community. It seems like now Congress is trying to kind of grapple with some of these issues and there isn't another way of examining them. Well, I mean, Congress has the ability. You know, Facebook, yeah, yeah, you're artificial right. intelligence, it's, and the you know, use of Facebook and things, um, or Meta. Um, it seems like there's a lot of grappling with these ideas, and they could do with having a commission to make recommendations. Well, you know, the the um, the. Uh... The, the Congress has a lot of power to bring folks in and talk to them and listen to them. And uh, so there's that. I mean, Congress does have the power to, 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 to get people to come to speak to it about important issues. And people love going to Congress, many of them do, to, uh, to talk about important matters. So there's that. But also, um, maybe this is a, a hopeful note. I mean, there are lots and lots of organizations around the country that are, that are hoping to, to provide um, resources for Congress. So uh, I just joined, I think our first meeting is next week, uh, an artificial intelligence committee convened by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully this group will have some, some input, could have some impact. I know that the, um, I served for a while on a, on a, on a, um, commission, not a commission, but it was a, um, a, a forum for cyber, cybersecurity that was sponsored by the, uh, uh, the, um, American Academy of, of, I'm going to get this wrong, by the uh, uh, National Academies of Engineering, Engineering, Medicine, and, uh, and Science. That, that group had a cyber uh, forum, cyber security forum, and that forum was hoping to have some impact uh, on, on what was happening with the, the government. So it's not like big societies and, and, and professional groups aren't trying to speak to government. They are. Government has to listen and then act. I mean, we've been waiting for decades now to get Congress to pass comprehensive privacy legislation, and they haven't done it. We're now stuck with laws that were passed in the 1980s um, 
In some instances, for example, our Electronic Communications Privacy Act that governs wiretapping and electronic data storage and um, and uh, access to, to telephonic uh, cover information, cell tower information, and so forth. Those laws were written in the 1980s, and they've been sort of haphazardly amended, but they need to be comprehensively uh, addressed. Most of our peer nations uh, have comprehensive data protection laws. We, we don't. Uh, and I think that's a big failure of, of Congress. And uh, we thought we were going to get a big law, a big law passed about uh, a year ago. Didn't happen. Uh, and now we're still waiting. So, um, you know, you're right that that uh, that there's so many big issues before Congress that could use some expert guidance. Uh, Congress needs to listen and they need to act. Oh, yeah, absolutely, uh, Dr. Allen. And speaking of genetic privacy, uh, and this is actually a good thing regarding, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 technology with gene editing, as this really uh, made folks that deal with this really threatening illness excited to have a longer quality of life. And I know that recently in December 2023, the FDA approved the first gene therapies to treat patients with sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia. Uh, And I think it really goes back to what you're saying, that there needs to be regulation, there needs to be protections for patients, for, for the general population. So I'm curious on what are your suggestions for protecting the genetic privacy of the general population, especially populations that have been historically mistreated? Uh, Thank you. So so it was um, it was exciting to learn that there was a treatment for sickle cell that seemed to be highly effective. I mean, it's a it's a devastating disease for those who are affected by it. and uh, so I was excited. I was I was concerned about the um, the I and I have been concerned as have many about the idea of modifying um, the germline, um, especially. But uh, but if modifying genetics gene genomes can actually improve the lives of existing people, I think that's that's a good thing. And there are ways to regulate it. Um, as for genetic privacy, it's a funny context in which to to talk about genetic privacy, right? Because um, when I was on the um, National Advisory Commission for Human Genome Research under Francis Collins back in the 1990s, um, everyone agreed that among the most important issues was going to be genetic privacy. If we mapped and sequenced the human genome, there's going to be a huge problem around genetic privacy. And genetic privacy was an exceptional concern, and everybody was thinking that we need to focus on making sure that although we had access to genetic technologies and genetic information, information could be kept private. Fast forward from the 1990s to today, and what's the message the public is hearing? Share your genome. Share your genome because sharing your genome is going to lead to improvements in medical treatment and medical care unless the researchers have access to tons and tons of phenotypical and genotypical information. They're not going to be able to advance as quickly as as you would like them to, public. The whole All of Us project that's going on right now where the government's trying to collect um, the genome and 
genomes and medical records of a million Amer diverse Americans in order to provide scientists in the future with a database for doing research. That project itself is what I'm talking about. The, that, that the idea that the public is being encouraged to share their genome, not encouraged to keep their genome to themselves. Now, whatever you might think about that project, um, the, my point here is just that that there's been a change in the in the um, attitude of researchers and the public as to the sensitivity and privacy of genetic information. So we have that whole thing about the government now encouraging people to share their genomes. Beyond that, though, um, we have the whole direct-to-consumer genetic testing um, 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 phase, phenomenon going on. I've done it myself. I've done 23andMe. My kids have done 23andMe. Uh, my husband's done 23andMe. Uh, so now people can get access to the genetic information, and many of them are sharing that information. Some are sharing within the family, as in my case. Others are sharing, though, um, as you pointed out, uh, in ways which, which reveal that strangers, they didn't even know they were their siblings, are their siblings. They're discovering sibling groups by sharing genetic information rather broadly through uh, Ancestry or 23andMe or some other kind of a resource. So I'm wondering, right, uh, about what genetic privacy amounts to in the current um, uh, climate because there's no longer this kind of genetic exceptionalism view of the ethics of genetic information, but rather there's this notion that we can keep genomes private enough, we can get informed consent for people to share their genomes, and then everything's uh, hunky-dory. We don't actually know what the future implications are going to be of all of us having shared so freely our genomes, um, because of course my sharing my genome is also my children's genome being shared and my brother's and sister's genomes being shared, parents' genomes being shared. Some of this sharing has resulted in the, in the capture of notorious criminals. It's resulted in the revelation that some doctors have committed uh, a fraud of the sort you described uh, in your, in your uh, reference to the Netflix show. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a lot's going on. So I, um, I think that when it comes to CRISPR, uh, I think let's worry less about the genetic privacy of the African-American um, uh, children and, and, and young adults who may be um, uh, um, benefiting from CRISPR and worry more about the safety of CRISPR technology and the implications of using CRISPR in general for the germline uh, and for the, um, you know, for the future of our of our of our of our um, of our um, of our health, public health. There's a concern, of course, that eventually this kind of technology could be used to um, eliminate dark skin, or broad noses, or thick lips, or you know, big behinds, or whatever that that's not in vogue at the time. And so we 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 definitely need to to sort of hold the line against this kind of technology being used for these kinds of, of, of frivolous and racist purposes. But I think that, that the genetic privacy issue is not one that I would think is in the forefront of why we ought to be worried about CRISPR and its future applications. Thank you. Thank you for your insight. Um, and of course, another big kahuna in the room with technologies, artificial intelligence. And do you think... Or how do you think artificial intelligence will change law, health, and society? And I guess a sub-question to that is personhood a possibility for artificial intelligence? I know these are really weighted questions, but I'm just curious uh, what you think about that. Um, so 
So, you know, AI is a friend and an enemy. Um, it's a friend because it can make um, business and government more efficient and provide um, research tools for, um, for students and scholars. But it's also, um, you know, an enemy because it can be used to aid discrimination. It can create new forms of discrimination. It can, um, it can uh, uh, cause accidents. If it's not uh, used properly, it can, you know, we're thinking about autonomous driving and, and uh, we're thinking about, you know, uh, uh, accidents that have already been caused by, by you know, self, so-called self-driving cars. So, so, so AI can be a friend and an enemy. In my recent work, and this is what I've been working on very recently, I'm working a lot on, on privacy and racial justice. And so let me speak about your question from that, that point of view. Um, I've identified in a Yale um, Law Review Forum article that was published in 2022, identified um, three recurring problems that black people, uh, African Americans, and people of color are experiencing right now, some of which relate directly to, to AI. So I call these three problems together the black opticon, and I said we ought to dismantle the black opticon. The black opticon consists of three types of problems. One of them is discriminatory over-surveillance, which is, which, which is a way in which black people and brown people are treated in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, this means that, you know, that, that, we are, that our, our communities are, are ca- cameras everywhere. We're on, on camera constantly. We're being physically watched constantly. Uh, we're being subjected to um, facial recognition technologies that are inaccurate thanks to bad AI. As you, you know, this is, a, this is no, no secret, but, you know, facial recognition technology doesn't work so well with darker skinned people, with women of color, etc. So, so, uh, so, so over surveillance aided by artificial intelligence is one of the problems of the black opticon that needs to be addressed. And I hope it can be addressed by, by law and other means and by technological improvement. So that's one thing, over surveillance, discriminatory over surveillance. The second is discriminatory, discriminatory exclusion, whereby... Um, technologies, including AI, are used to um, to sort of push people of color to the to the margins of society. So opportunities for loans and housing are not available because AI has identified you as uh, a person who's who's black and less desirable as a customer, and therefore you don't see the same advertisements, for example, uh, on your computer that a white person or a person who's wealthy might see on their computer. Um, there were, there, I'm giving this example because there's a, there was an actual, as you know, Facebook scandal around this a couple of years ago that led to, to federal intervention. Um, then the third problem, besides discriminatory over surveillance and discriminatory exclusion, is is extremely, a discriminatory um, con job, discriminatory scamming, discriminatory predation. Black people, people of color, are preyed upon. Uh, on online, especially where they're singled out because of their vulnerabilities to be sold things that are not in their interest to be sold. So there's a there's a case that uh, got to the attention of the FTC, whereby um, uh, black people were being targeted with advertisements for some of these um, like um, um, uh, uh, background check websites, where they um, send you messages which suggest that you might have a criminal history. And because all of us as black people are concerned about being discriminated against as, as criminals, whether we have a criminal history or not, people would be like, oh my God, I might be online as having a criminal history. Let me buy this thing and this, 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 this service and so I can check and see if I have a criminal history. And then, of course, they, they don't. Um, 
This kind of scamming of, of, of predation of black people is one of the things which I think uh, AI has facilitated because it helps to identify people and, and, to, and to sort them by, by, by race, by economic status, and by zip code and, and so forth. So, so those three problems, which are AI-aided today, I think need to be addressed. And I do think that legislation could help to address those. And I'm glad to see that there's discussions in Congress and on the state level about, about AI that would improve consumers' experience with the internet, at least. That's one little little part of this. So uh, as far as bioethics is concerned, um, you know, some of the things that, that I think, um, uh, some of the over-surveillance that, that we see is biometric over-surveillance. And I think many bioethicists are concerned also about the use of biometrics as, as to identify, which means you know, iris scans, um, gait recognition, um, voice recognition and so forth being that where the body is used to identify people, this is going on is going on in ways which are highly discriminatory in the United States and in other countries as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, surveillance, especially when it comes to race relations, continues to reinvent itself based off of the time and technology. So really keen insight on that, Dr. Allen. Thank you very much. Uh, is there anything else that you are currently working on that we should be on the lookout for? <laughs> so my main work right now does relate to the connection between privacy and racial justice. Um, uh, and uh, I'm also doing a, a, a paper right now that I hope will come out later this year on uh, the question of privacy as a civil right. Um, not a bioethics topic, but it's a topic that I think bioethicists would be interested in. Because what's interesting to me is that until about five years ago, you never, ever, ever heard the idea that, oh, privacy is a civil right. Maybe it's a human right. Maybe it's a fundamental legal right. Maybe it's a moral right. But only recently have you been hearing that privacy is a civil right. And why is that? It's primarily because in the conversation around AI, uh, this is my theory, in the conversation around AI, there's been a lot of focus on the, the abuses of AI in relation to minority groups. So the same minority groups that were at issue in the civil rights era are now at issue in the digital era as being special victims. And that special victimization has led to this discussion among civil rights organizations around the country, civil liberties organizations, scholars, um, and advocates uh, about the need to understand privacy as a civil right because it protects things that maybe it's not voting, maybe it's not housing, maybe it's not it's not education as such, but it protects important interests that people of color um, have, that women have, that disabled people have, that the vulnerable people in our society have. So I'm writing about that that now as well. I also like to mention um, um, briefly that. Uh, you know, I, I like to, to, uh, to be inspired. I am inspired by my own personal experiences. It's what I focus on in the field of bioethics. So we don't have time to get deeply into this, but I would like to briefly mention here that um, because of issues in my family around disability, mental illness, um, migraine headaches, um, infertility, and cancer, I have been just so uh, desirous of improving the way we understand ethical issues and social justice issues surrounding those things. I think it's not, it's not, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't view bioethics as an era, area in which, which, which the experts are at, at a distance from the problems. I think many of us in bioethics are moved to this work because we see in our own families and friends and in our own bodies that some of the concerns that, that um, need to be discussed and debated and legislated about. 
Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing about your personal story and your professional journey as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great discussion. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chun. Our editor is Madeline Mahoney. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cortes. We are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Gargi Pandey is our creative director. Nicole Strand is our advisor and Steven Sodecki is our senior advisor. Join us again next time.